This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon, and this is the Eye on the Market for April 8th, 2019. And uh, if you're listening, you're about to hear some Fed Zeppelin, because that is the title of today's note. Uh, We were optimistic that we'd have a rebound this year in the U.S. and emerging markets, and we wrote about that in December uh, you know, the morning after Christmas and in, in the outlook. Uh, but markets have moved well above even what we thought we would see. Um, U.S. equity valuations are now back above median. Uh, and the recovery after the bear market we had in December is now tied for the fastest recovery after a bear market in the post-war era. Uh, so why did this all happen at a time when global growth is slowing and there's a black hole in European manufacturing and things like that, well, it um, has a lot to do with the Fed. So the Fed has pivoted from uh, a stance where they were going to be tightening this year to one where they will no longer be shrinking their balance sheet, no more rate hikes, uh, and the benefits are pronounced for risk-taking um, for the U.S. And, and also for emerging markets and, and for a lot of credit markets globally. Uh, China is also the big driver of the rally. We've got the increased probability of a trade deal, uh, as well as a lot of Chinese fiscal stimulus, and which is pushing up some of the leading indicators. But the, the real story and why we're talking about Fed Zeppelin is the, the fuel, the, uh, the explosive fuel for this recovery that we've had this year is the Fed, uh, which uh, our investment bank was initially thinking we'd see maybe four hikes this year. And I've never seen anything like this in my 31 years. We, in, over the span of two months, uh, our investment bank went from projecting four hikes to none uh, based on this pivot that the, the Fed has done. Now, they made a big mistake, the Fed did, in 1966 when they switched to tightening from tightening to easing after an equity market sell-off, uh, and they were ignoring some of the inflationary pressures at the time. But what we get into this week is uh, a lot has changed regarding the pass-through from falling unemployment to rising wages and prices. So... The Fed's making a big gamble that the Phillips curve is dead. Uh, we have modest confidence that they're right, but if they, if they turn out to get this wrong, we could have a pretty sharp correction. But, so we, we walk through in this week's Eye on the Market some of the indicators to keep track of to get a sense for whether or not the Fed uh, is making a mistake. As for the slow as slowdown in global growth and earnings that we're seeing, this looks like definitely a soft patch of economic activity centered in Europe. Um, but uh, rather than a sign, and but a temporary one, rather than as a sign that the global cycle is now coming to a more abrupt end. So on the second page of this week's note, you can see the extraordinary statistics behind this bounce in the market. Uh, we've recovered almost 80% of the sell-off within two months. Um, that's only happened once before back in 1982. Uh, aside from that, uh, usually two months in, we've only recovered anywhere from 10 to 30% of the sell-off, and now we're at 80. Uh, valuations for equities in the U.S. and Europe are back in the 70 to 80% range in terms of percentiles versus history. And, um, and again, all of this is happening at a time when global GDP, profits, manufacturing, U.S. capital spending surveys, all this stuff is rolling over. So uh, the Fed's making a big gamble here. 
that falling unemployment is not going to translate into rising wage inflation. Uh, China is the other big piece of this, as I mentioned. Um, we have some charts in here on fiscal stimulus and the rebound and some of the manufacturing and service sector data. Uh, I, I, there's another chart that we had in here. We've always felt that there was going to be a deal um, between the U.S. and China. And one of the charts we have shows the linkages between the U.S. and China uh, are much deeper linkages than potential adversaries or actual adversaries of the past. And I know that a lot of people read this new book called The Thucydides Trap, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but there's a book from Graham Allison at Harvard that refers to the inevitability of conflict between the, the U.S. and China um, based on historical parallels. Uh, I'll say this. When you look back historically, um, and we have a chart in here that shows the numbers, you won't find prior adversaries, whether they were actual or potential, that held massive amounts of each other's um, government debt in their central banks, uh, that had the level of bilateral foreign direct investment that we see going on between the U.S. and China, and that have the annual trade flows. So we've always felt that there was a lot of economic incentives that were, were more suggestive that there would be a deal rather than a worst-case uh, trade war the, along the lines of what the Peterson Institute and other, and other firms were, and other think tanks were examining. Um, and just, I do want to say this about if there is some kind of deal. I can already hear in my head uh, the media sniping and complaints about that the U.S. deal with China maybe entails more purchases of U.S. goods and some modest opening of Chinese markets, but doesn't accomplish enough on IP and joint venture requirements and Chinese subsidies and discriminatory regulatory practices. Uh, it looks like the deal that's on the table is, is a modest one, but any Chinese concessions at all uh, would be a lot more than the Bush and Obama administrations accomplished after China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. So I think in the realm of the possible, uh, this administration may have gotten more accomplished uh, than, than its two prior ones. And as, as Europe is finding right now, uh, they're considering tougher regulations on Chinese foreign direct investment and uh, how to deal with Chinese overcapacity and force tech transfers and things like that. It's not a simple thing to do. When I mentioned that the Fed's gamble is that the Phillips curve remains broken, uh, for those of you familiar with it, the Phillips curve measures the relationship between changes in unemployment and its impact on wages and prices. And so one of the other things we take a look at uh, this week is what's happened to the Phillips curve and why from 1980, let's say, to 2000, it behaved the way it normally did, where unemployment falls and eventually wages and prices go up. And, uh, and over the last decade or two, all of a sudden that relationship is broken. We take a close look at how behavior of companies to absorb cost changes through margins rather than prices, uh, globalization, which makes U.S. prices more sensitive to global conditions and domestic ones, impact of on online retailing, impact of falling labor bargaining power. All of these things um, have contributed to this collapse. And so while, it, while it's kind of remarkable, we're now at, uh, I don't know, a 50-year low in the unemployment rate, and yet the employment cost index is only going up at, let's say, 25 to 3%. And... Um, Productivity is rising a little bit, so the real unit labor costs are rising even more slowly. Uh, core PCE inflation is pretty relaxed. Most uh, inflation expectation numbers are pretty stable. So uh, it looks like the Fed, uh, despite an incredibly tight job market, is, uh, 
is in a safe zone right now with respect to this approach to no longer tightening and, and, and some people think maybe easing. Now, if, if it turns out they're wrong and they make a mistake the way they did in 1966, there'll be quite a large uh, correction from that. And then to finish the thoughts for the week, how else might uh, this Fed Zeppelin explode? Well, the risks over the long run from leaving relates low forever is really destructive for uh, large institutional investors who buy a lot of fixed income that don't benefit from lower deposit rates. And those are, of course, pension funds and insurance companies. And uh, as you know from our Ark and the Covenants work on municipals, there's a handful of states that really look irredeemably insolvent when you think about them on a long-term perspective. Um, so that's, uh, that's a brief description of what we've got going on this week. Uh, and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Michael Semblist's Eye on the Market offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as a solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com disclaimer eotm.